0: For me, this section of scripture is deep, it's powerful, and it was transformative in my own life. And my prayer is that it would be in your life as well. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit ThisIsShoreline.com. Every day we are faced with a decision to place our faith in one of two places. We have a choice to put it either in our circumstances or in the truth of Scripture one of these two will take the higher place of authority in every one of our lives. So when I look at something in my life, an experience that I've gone through, through my interpretive lens or through the interpretive lens of my personal experience, without true light being shown on it, well, then I'm going to default to my own understanding every single time. I'm going to search for the wealth and the bank of my own experience and my own knowledge and try to gauge it from my own experience. And that's one one way to look at life in scripture through the lens of my experience. The other option is to look at my experience through the lens of scripture. And thus I view my circumstances and I view my experiences in the light of the word of God, not the word of God in light of my experiences. Does that make sense? Are you following what I'm saying? So the scripture itself becomes the judge and my experience is the one put on the witness stand, not the other way around. You guys follow me? So when scripture disagrees with my experience... I'm forced to either change the perception of my experience and align it with Scripture, or I have to change my perception of Scripture. Now, there are situations where we have to admit we may have mis- misinterpreted the Bible, uh, we may have completely misunderstood it, and so I'm not referring to moments where our interpretation is just weak or heretical. Okay, in those instances, we do need to change our understanding of the Word. But when it comes down to either my view, or scripture as the highest authority, I have to submit my view as uncomfortable as it may be, I have to submit that to scripture. Now often I've been running early in the morning Uh, And and I'm I'm not doing that because I have a death wish. I'm doing that because I actually want to um, be serious about beating my body and making it my slave. And I'd hope to live past 50. So I'm trying to do something fit and and fitness oriented. And before this time change last night, which wasn't that glorious? Uh, This is great. (laughs) That's why we're all here today and happy. So... Before the time change, though, it was dark. It was very dark. And so I found myself running often on these different nature paths in East Bradenton. And so I just had this thought one day, like as I'm starting to run, I've got my, my earbuds in and, and I've got my, my playlist going or podcast or teaching. And so I'm running, and it just dawns on me as I go down this dark nature path. I'm like, what if an animal jumped out and mauled me? Like, what would that, what would that headline read? Lakewood Ranch Pastor... You know, eaten for breakfast. Like, like, what, what would this look like? And so I'm just, I was like, well, you know, I mean, that isn't unbiblical. People have been mauled by she bears and whatnot. So I'm like, man, I don't know about this. So uh, through the month of October, I'm running, and, and I, I've got to tell you, there was one time I was running, and up on the path ahead, it's very dark, and I almost swore that is absolutely a snake uh, or a small alligator. I, I'm going to step on the snake, and I'm going to get struck and He's going to eat me. He's going to pull me into the lake. And, uh, but when I got closer, I was like, oh, okay, no, no. It turns out that big scary python was just a palm frond. <laughs> it was not an animal. Or, or I was running one time, and I see this shadow, and I'm just convinced. There it is. There's the end of Pastor Pilgrim. There's a pastor for breakfast. It's gone. I, I, yeah, when I get up close, it's not a panther at all. It's just a bush. All right, so uh, what I mean by that is I was fully convinced about what I perceived, Right? I, I was like, that's definitely an animal. That's a panther, man. And yet my vision was skewed. I, I was in the dark. And it wasn't until there was light and understanding that I could see the forest for the trees. So my experience had to bow to the greater light. Does that make sense? So my experience has to bow to scripture. Uh, the Bible's not on the witness stand with my experience as the judge. And this concept that we're talking about is what the reformers called sola scriptura. The idea that scripture alone was the highest authority. Sola scriptura is a message that the church needs today. Amen. We need to come back to the sufficiency and the authority of scripture greater than our own experience. It's a message we need to hear today, as uncomfortable as it is. It's a message that the church needed uh, in the days of the reformation in the 15, 1600s. And it was a message that the church needed in the region of Galatia in the first century. You see, Paul the apostle, the apostle sent by God and not by man, is going to continue his argument in Galatians uh, against the Judaizers. We've learned that those are simply the group of the circumcision who taught that you must keep the Old Testament law in addition to faith uh, in order to be saved or sanctified. And so in Galatians chapter 3 and 4 where we're going today in the next few weeks, Paul the Apostle unpacks some of his, you could say his most theologically deep concepts in perhaps all of his writing. So I'm glad for the time change. We're going to need the extra help today and the next few weeks um, to really lean forward in our study and grasp what Paul is saying through this section of Scripture. Because listen, when we grasp it, man, it is revolutionary. This was the section of scripture that I was first exposed to when I was a legalist. It was my pastor teaching through Galatians 3 and 4 that suddenly I realized, oh, I'm a legalist. I've got an inner attorney that is constantly vying for my own righteousness, and I need to submit that to the righteousness of Christ. I need to actually lay that down and crush it at the foot of the cross. And so for me, this section of scripture is deep, it's powerful, and it was transformative in my own life. And my prayer is that it would be in your life as well. How would Paul get through to the church who had been led astray by false teaching. How does he get through to them? Without Twitter, without Facebook, how does he get through to them? Well, he's gonna use a very wise strategy at the beginning of Galatians 3 that I would encourage actually every parent of teens to employ. Uh, Perhaps a proverb will help unpack this. Look at this proverb. Proverbs 20 verse five says this. You can take a picture of it or jot it down. It says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. But a man of understanding will draw it out. So what does that mean? Well, when we speak with people, often we can't get to the true heart level just by talking with them. We do this this morning at the greeting time. Someone said, how you doing? And we'll go, good, fine. Uh, and, and there's nothing really there depth-wise. We just kind of shake our hands. And But are you doing fine? It almost seems inappropriate to say, no, I'm doing horrible. Please pray for me, hug me. Right? It doesn't seem appropriate to do that at the greeting time. Uh, And so how do we get to the heart level? Their heart is like a deep well of water. So notice that the proverb says, a man of understanding will draw it out. So what does that mean? How do we draw out what's in a man's heart? Well, you ask them questions. So when parents of teenagers say, my kids never talk to me, uh, I would venture to say, well, start asking questions. Begin to ask questions. And don't only ask yes or no questions. Did you have a good day? Yes. Are you doing good? Yes. Right? So we ask deeper questions. And we find out someone's heart by inquiry. So here in chapter 3 of Galatians, Paul uses the same method by asking six questions that appeal to the Galatians' experiences. He says, hey, you, you think that you can be justified this way. Can you be sanctified this way? So he begins to ask them questions to draw out their experience. He doesn't shy away from that. But he asks them to draw out their heart purpose. But then... For the one-two punch, Paul goes on to quote six passages of Scripture to outline six concepts for the Galatians to consider. So he starts with experience to weaken their heretical argument, and then he finishes by quoting Scripture to build their theology back up. By the way, if you're in a debate, that's a good way of doing it. You ask questions to tear down, then you bring propositions to build back up. So if we were to really study Paul's letter and break it down verse by verse, which that's what exactly we're doing here every week, um, then you would actually have in Galatians 3, 1 through 14, uh, you ready for this? You'd have a 12-point sermon. So guess what we have this morning? You guys got the extra hour of sleep. We have a 12-point sermon here. I hope you had your coffee. Okay, so here's where we're going this morning. First, we're going to see six questions based on experiences, verses 1 through 6. And six considerations based on scripture. We still need time for communion, so we're gonna move quickly through them. Let's dive right in and look at the first of the six questions that Paul asks. Look at verse one, and here's the first question O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? You can almost hear the intensity, the passion in Paul's voice. He's saying, You fools! You've you've been bewitched. Now, I want you for a minute to circle that word. If you have your scripture journal, circle that, tie it over to the right. In the Greek, this word can be translated on the screen. It can be translated to enchant, to fascinate, or to delude by magical charms. That's what the word means that Paul uses here. So many many believe that the word that's used here is linked to a superstition that's still held by many people today in the world. And this superstition is called the evil eye. Maybe you've heard of that. Many people in the Greek community still believe in the evil eye. And the idea behind the evil eye is that someone can pronounce a curse on you just by looking at you uh, with an eye of malevolence, with an eye of of envy or disdain. Uh, And so there are things that you can do to kind of ward off that curse because if you don't stop it, you'll receive it. And so actually in fashion, there's an eye now. Uh, A lot of ladies are like, yep. All right, there's an eye now that you can wear, and the idea behind it with with kind of pagan background is that that eye will capture the stare that an evil person gives to you, and it'll catch that and deflect that. Uh, Almost like wear this charm, and you can uh, ward it off. But when we think of this word bewitching, one way to translate this is to be hypnotized. To be hypnotized. You can almost see this as a play on the word eye, which Paul mentions in the second half of the verse. So here's what one person said. Paul could be saying it like this who could have succeeded in bringing you under the spell of an evil eye when directly before your own eyes stood revealed the crucified Christ? In other words, he said, how could you have been enchanted by some other gospel when you seemed to fully understand the work of Christ on your behalf at Calvary? Before your eyes, church, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, When he says that, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying you actually were there at the cross. You were eyewitnesses in Jerusalem. That's not what he's saying. You don't have to be an eyewitness to then have faith, right? Because there were many there on that day who wagged their heads and and did not believe. So it doesn't mean you have to be an eyewitness of the cross to be a believer. When Paul says you, you remember he was publicly portrayed, that's a phrase in the first century that you would use to put up a public announcement. So when you wanted to give a, a, a sale of an auction, kind of like today, we put them in the, the yard signs with arrows, some of them are handmade, we put them in the yard and we're like, take a left here, there's an auction, and then, you know, go down the right street and you'll find the, the sale. Um, here in Florida, we don't really have garage sales because no one parks cars in garages, I guess, but anyway, yard sale, garage sale, um, carport sale, Uh, You guys get the idea. Um, But he's saying, you've read the notice, church. You heard the proclamation of the gospel. So you're without excuse because the gospel message was clearly proclaimed to you. Now, if you would, real quick, in verse 1, circle um, that word who. It's not plural in the usage Paul gives. It's singular. So it's almost as if Paul is saying some person actually snuck in. And divided. It wasn't a group of people, it was a person. You could almost make an argument that they were falling under the spell of Satan himself, which, by the way, is true if you entertain false doctrine. The Bible says that's doctrine taught by demons. And so the Galatians knew the truth, so someone had to come in from the outside and put them under a heretical spell. Some of you have been involved in heresy or in cults and you can admit there's some type of spell you fell under. You didn't even realize I had to come to my senses and so Paul is trying to do that. He's trying to to draw them out. You guys are foolish. Why did you let this happen? So verse two, second question. He says, let me only ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now Paul says, let me ask you only this as if this is his only question. And his question is this, do you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the commands or do you receive the Holy Spirit by faith? Again, he's appealing to their experience here. Uh, This would have been really easy to answer because when the Galatians received Christ, they received the Holy Spirit. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit when they started following the law. The logical answer to this question is, well, duh, by hearing with faith. Now, um, he mentions the Spirit here and the, the subject of the Holy Spirit is key in the book of Galatians. In fact, if you're taking note, the Spirit of God, the Spirit is mentioned 18 times in this letter. And so here Paul is saying, you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe, not when you tried to follow the law. Uh, here's what Warren Weirsby says. He says, the only real evidence of conversion is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We know as Christians we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit we, when we believe the Spirit indwells us. And so only those truly in Christ um, can say that the Spirit of Christ is within us. In fact, Paul told the Romans in Romans 8-9 that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So to have the Holy Spirit is to be in Christ. So do we receive the spirit by keeping the law or by faith? Well, it's an obvious question. It almost seems embarrassing to ask it. Like so elementary that it's awkward to ask this question. It's kind of like, why do I even answer that? Like to ask the question, does Tampa Bay have a good football team? Right? It's just like, no, of course not. (laughs) Why would you even ask that? Uh, Do you you watch the games? I didn't think so. So uh, then we get to Paul's third question. If you're a Bucks fan, we still love you. Uh, The third question is in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Paul says, are you so foolish? you got to love Paul. Are you so foolish? Now, the word here, and the word in verse 1 for foolish is not the same curse word that Jesus forbid in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? In fact, when we read this through, maybe someone thought, wait a minute, we're not supposed to call our brother a fool, raka. Well, that word, fool, that Jesus uses is different. Jesus is referencing someone who is a godless moron, right? That's, we shouldn't call someone that. You godless moron. That's not what we're to call someone in traffic, okay? We don't do that. Um, Jesus said not to do that. But here the word Paul uses is a totally different word. Um, you could translate it spiritually dull, okay? Spiritually dull. Wow. Consider that for a minute. The Judaizers had come along and cut in on the believers who should have known better. So what that means is they weren't safeguarding the gospel. They weren't paying attention to the sideline chatter. And so these ideas crept into the church and eventually seduced the church and put them under a captivating smell, uh, spell. And they should have been able to smell it like cigar smoke at a daycare. If you're ever dropping your kids off at daycare and you smell cigar smoke, chances are There's going to be a response in you, right? Uh, What do you do when that happens? You're first going to say, I recognize something's wrong. And you're going to smell it and go, where's that coming from? That doesn't belong. The second step is you begin to search out where the source is. And when you find the source, you either slap the person, right, or you take your kids out of that daycare. You remove the problem or you remove yourself from the problem. Maybe both. So Paul is saying, are you so foolish Are you so spiritually dull? How could you have let someone come and mislead you when you knew better? You've come to this place of maturity. Why are you still allowing these simple heresies to take you offline? Now, notice the fourth fourth question Paul asks them. It's the second half of verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? And then he says this, question number four. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, in your sanctification, uh, keeping the law, trying to keep the law to stay holy uh, is missing the mark. You began with the spirit in your justification. You got to continue with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Living Bible paraphrases this verse. I don't quote it a lot. I have to be careful with paraphrases, but I like the way it paraphrases. It says, for if trying to obey the Jewish laws never gave you spiritual life in the first place, why do you think that trying to obey them now will make you stronger Christians. That's what they believe. If I just keep the law perfectly, then I'll have more sanctification, more holiness. But if the Holy Spirit regenerated us and was the active agent in our justification, why would we seek to turn to the law for our sanctification? The flesh will not perfect us. According to Paul, it's just going to sink us. I mean, we could spend an entire sermon series on this idea alone, having begun in the Spirit and trying to be perfected in the flesh. We could talk about a lot of church movements having begun in the Spirit, and now they're trying to be perfected in the flesh. We don't have time for that. We have to move on. But look at the fifth question in verse 4. Paul says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, follow Paul's train of thought here, guys. He's saying to step out of Judaism and into trusting Christ would have meant bitter persecution for the early church. That that would have been incredibly intense. So all of their suffering at the hands of Jewish persecutors would have been in vain if they went back to the law. That would have just proved their persecutors correct if they went back to the law. Remember, this is a region, Galatia, is a region in the world where in his missionary journeys, Paul faced some of the bitterest and heaviest persecution. You can read about it in Acts 14, but at one point the Jews stir up the crowd against Paul. And in the city of Lystra, they actually provoke the crowd to stone him. I mean, so he was actually, I mean, if you played airsoft or or paintball or you've accidentally been hit by a stone before, this is men full on tossing stones. Well, tossing is even kind of a weak verb. Hurling stones at you, right? Eventually killing you and laying the stones on top of you in a heap. And the book of Acts seems to hint that that's kind of what happened to Paul. He's laying there, left for dead, pile of stones on top of him. And yet the brothers pray for him, and he kind of revives and gets up. And at that point, I've said this before, at that point I'd be like, all right, well, we're done with Lystra. (laughs) Let's just shake the dust off of our feet for that city. And are there any other cities in town? Can we go reach? And yet Paul goes back into the city of Lystra. That may have been an impact In the life of young Timothy who eventually began to follow Christ and follow Paul. So surely the first believers in the same region would have suffered much for their faith in Jesus at the hands of these Jewish persecutors. But Paul says it wasn't in vain. I like that he says if indeed it was in vain. He's holding out hope that the Galatians will abandon their false legalistic doctrines and continue to trust in Christ. I like that hope that Paul has. We need that hope when we're speaking with people. Uh, If if it it is in vain, maybe it's not in vain, so there's still hope. Now the sixth question is found in verse 5. Paul says this, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's question is straightforward. Who supplies the believer with the Holy Spirit? Who is that? That's the Father. That's God. How does God send his spirit? Does he send his spirit as a gift or as a wage? Obviously as a gift, and that gift is a result of faith. The same with miracles. Miracles come as a result of faith, not obeying the law. So God gifts us with his spirit at conversion, and he works miraculously among his people, and he does that by faith. And neither of these works are a result of law keeping. So so with these six questions, What Paul's doing here is he's trying to unhypnotize the believers uh, in Galatia who had been led astray and just kind of snap them out of it by asking these questions. If you've ever been in a disagreement, sometimes the best way is just, you know, let me just ask some questions to get to the the heart issue, to draw out the understanding. And so he uses their experiences back against them to reveal the folly of their new views. And he could have left it there. But now Paul's whole point in the next section, starting in verse 6, is a case study of Abram. Look, look at Abraham, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, Paul begins to mention Abraham. And his argument is that before the law was given, before the law even showed up with Moses, Abraham believed God. And the faith that Abraham had in God led to righteousness being credited to his account. This is before any work was done on Abraham's part. This is even before the Mosaic law had been given. And so starting in verse 7, Paul moves from the subjective to the scripture. From, you could say, from emotion to exposition. Uh, We do not, again, base scripture on our experience, but our experience on scripture. And the Judaizers would no doubt have tried to bring up Abraham and circumcision as maybe a tool in their own arsenal And so Paul says, okay, you want to bring up Abraham? Let's bring up Abraham. Let's bring it back to our father. Now, I can imagine the legalists here saying, well, you know what? We have scripture. We have scripture to back up our doctrine. What do you have, Paul? And Paul says, okay, yeah, let's look at scripture. And let's see how you're misinterpreting that scripture. Uh, By the way, when people who hold to false doctrine misuse, they might say, oh, I have a scripture for that but they misuse proof texts, which means they're just kind of a string of verses kind of brought out of context, and they kind of take the Bible and do Bible origami, okay? That is not faithful exegesis. That's not faithful exposition. That's not faithful teaching. Many people are led astray when the Bible is misquoted, okay? It's it's wrong. It's cringy, My kids tell me that when I use the word cringy, that's cringy. But it's more than cringy, it's wrong, it's reprehensible. Because you're leading people astray through misquoting scripture. So Paul bringing up Abraham would have surprised the Judaizers who kept misquoting scripture and misrepresented Abraham. Here's what David Gusick says about this. He says, generally speaking, ancient rabbis did not really admire Abraham's faith. They believed he was so loved by God Uh, because he was thought to have kept the law hundreds of years before it was given. For these and other reasons, when Paul brought up Abraham, it would have been a complete surprise to his opponents who believed that Abraham proved their point. So now we consider six scripture references and statements that Paul uses to build his argument. And so let's kind of walk through these one by one. If you're taking note, we're going to jot these down. We actually have a scripture reference in verse 6, but we're going to bring that up at the end. So let's start in verse 7 and see the first one. Then I think we have it on the screen. Number one, uh, Paul's statement is that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. Genesis 12, 3. Look at it, verse 7. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is a reference to Genesis twelve three, and there God makes a covenant with Abram, saying that I will bless you, so that you'll be a blessing to others. He says, in fact, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And and guys, this, according to Paul, is the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. You might say, how's that? Well. What he's saying is, is through Abraham, through his descendants, so we follow his descendants, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and Perez, and all the way down through Boaz, and Obed, and Jesse, and King David, and then all the way down would come one who would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so the nations, the Gentiles, even you and I this morning, would be recipients of this blessing. But it would come through the lineage of Abraham, and it would be through Christ. Over 300 times in the Old Testament, you read that Israel was blessed to be a blessing. And so we're going to read through every single one of these this morning. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. But it's mentioned, Pastor Micah taught on this recently as we went through our our mission, When Disciples Sin, the concept of enjoying my grace and extending my glory. But see, the reality is that Abraham was blessed to be a blessing to all the nations, to all nations, to all peoples. And that means that what God intended with Abraham is not just to bless him with the nation of Israel. The idea was that he would bless all nations with the gospel, the good news of his seed, Jesus Christ. Therefore, listen, the Great Commission is not an afterthought. Like, oh, man, whoops, we should have done something about this. No, that was the whole point from the very beginning. It was a fulfillment even today of what was originally promised to Abraham. So Abraham's true sons... Are not merely Jewish, they are those who have placed their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. So listen, your genetics might qualify you as a physical son of Abraham, but not a spiritual one. So you know this. We grew up, if you grew up in church, we used to sing this almost every week. It was one of my favorites. This is a classic request in kids' ministry. Father Abraham, you remember this. I'm not going to sing it for you, but Father Abraham had many, maybe we should. I don't know, Micah, should we? No. Had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's get circumcised. (laughs) No, that's, that's not what it says. So listen, his first point is that if you want to be a son of Abraham and have righteousness credited to your account... You don't look to the law, you look to faith. Secondly, look at this. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Deuteronomy 27, 26, verse 10, here's what he says. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do them. Please circle the word all things, two words, and the word do them. All things do, all and do. Okay? In Deuteronomy 27, 26, God is arguing that it isn't enough to just keep one commandment here and one commandment there. No, you're obligated to fulfill all of it. The sum of the law. To transgress one jot and tittle is to transgress the sum of it. Surely one of the arguments of the Judaizers was, Hey, God wants us to keep the law. So Paul pushes this argument to its logical conclusion. Okay, if you keep one part of it, you must keep all of it or else. That word all. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. Listen, you can't pride yourself this morning that you kept one of the Ten Commandments. Well, you know, I never stole anything, so I'm good to go. Uh, God should understand that and grade on a curve. No, you must abide by all 613 of the law's restrictions and never for a moment break them, even accidentally. Uh, by the way, that word all was removed in that verse by the, uh, in Deuteronomy 27, 26. It was removed by the Hebrew uh, Jewish Torah. It was removed in that uh, today, even though it's in multiple manuscripts of Deuteronomy as well as the Septuagint. The church father, Jerome, said the Jews wanted to suppress that word. They wanted to not let it appear that they were bound to perform all things written in the book of the law. But it's there. We're to do it all. And then he says, do them. Cursed is the one who doesn't uh, abide by all things, and do them. So listen, church, it, it wasn't enough just to know the law, to love the law, to believe the law. You must do the things written in them. And that, according to Paul, according to Scripture, brings a curse Not that the law of God, that the laws are cursed, but if you're seeking to be justified and sanctified by the works of law, you're now under a curse because no one on earth born of Adam with a sin nature is capable of keeping the law perfectly. I mean, in the 10 commandments, just in the 10, we're told thou shalt not bear false witness. That's just one. Uh, So that means do not lie. And someone here this morning might go, well, hang on, I've never lied. And I would say, have you ever gone to the dentist? And the dentist says, have you been flossing? <laughs> yeah, I've been flossing. And in the meantime, your mouth is gushing blood. I've been flossing, yeah. So uh, to make his case further, look at this third uh, statement. Paul says this. No one is justified before God by the law. Habakkuk 2.4. Look at verse 11. Paul says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. This is a quote, of course, of Habakkuk 2.4. We studied Habakkuk earlier this year. If you didn't, if you weren't here for that study or you didn't listen to the whole thing, go back on our podcast, uh, Calvary Shoreline Podcast, and listen to that series. It's great. Habakkuk 2.4 is a critical verse. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, and it is uh, really uh, kind of the fuel behind the Reformation. It's quoted in Romans 1.17, which really transformed Luther. Uh, and there, um, faith is emphasized. The just shall live by faith. It's also quoted in Hebrews 10, 38, where live is emphasized. The just shall live by his faith. And here in Galatians 3, it's the word righteous or just that's emphasized. The righteous shall live by faith. How are we made righteous? Well, even the Old Testament does not say by law, but by faith. I love what John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, um, said one time. I love that book title, by the way. I don't know why. But... John Bunyan said this in separate a separate writing. He said, One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. Awesome. So the just, the righteous shall live not by law, but by faith. We learned this last week. The law just reveals our sin, but it's powerless to make us right. It shows us that we need to change, but it doesn't change us. It points us to what's lacking, but it doesn't supply our deficiency, So we're not justified by law but by faith in Christ who by his death on the cross, by his penal substitution on our behalf, made us justified right with God. So Paul's logic goes deeper in verse 12. Look at this fourth statement, it's fourth scripture. His statement is this, the law is not of faith. Even the law itself, to keep it, is not just being kept by faith. Leviticus 18.5. He says in verse 12, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them... Shall live by them. Okay? Now this kind of seems confusing, but here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, good intentions don't qualify. It isn't enough to try to keep the law, and then God says, good effort, son, great effort. Keep it up. That's good enough for me. It's not that you put in good effort, it's that no, you just have to obey it. So you can't say, Well, I follow the law by faith. I I just by faith I'm following and keeping the law. No, you have to say, I obey the law. If you're going to keep it. So, in other words, this way. You, you can't say to the policeman uh, or the trooper, you know, I believe and know that the speed limit is 70. And, officer, I have faith in the speed limit. I absolutely believe in it and trust it. But I've tried very hard to keep my vehicle under 120 this morning. and, and But, yeah, I mean, it's a V8 engine officer. And so it really is smooth at 120, right? Um, But I respect and revere and appreciate. No, you either obey it or you transgress it. What you intended doesn't matter. And if you've transgressed it even once, you're cursed. Do you feel with me this morning as if Paul has pushed us into the grave with this argument? That if we held this argument, we're hopeless. We're sunk. We're beyond repair if this is what we're hanging on to for hope. I think that maybe you have that same feeling that he's just dug the Judaizers into a grave and there's no way out. But look at his fifth point in verse 13 on the screen. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. You see, the curse of the law is death, which is the penalty for those who break the commands of the law. But Christ has redeemed us from death by being put to death in our place. So in the law, when a criminal was condemned to death, that was one thing. But when you were hung upon a tree, it was a special sign that you were actually accursed. Worse than the death penalty was to be hung on a tree. And when he says hung, he's not meaning strangulation from a rope on a tree. But the ultimate disgrace of having a dead corpse, your corpse, Suspended upon a tree, exposed to shame and humiliation and horror, as well as the elements. This was among many other reasons why crucifixion was horrific to the Jews. But both Acts chapter 5, verse 30, and 1 Peter 2:24, I'll say those again. Acts 5:30, 1 Peter 2:24, both mention that Jesus was hung upon a tree in this manner. Jesus became cursed to death so that he could redeem us from the curse of death. So when we see the word redeem, please circle that, it means to buy back or to pay a ransom. So Jesus didn't just come and live a good life and then God said, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna cancel it. I'm just gonna remit the debt. Uh, I'm just gonna forgive it and overlook it. Like it's fine. It's it's good. We're just gonna just pretend it never happened. If that were the case, then you and I you and I may still fear the wrath of God looming overhead. Well, what if God gets kind of angry and says, yeah, actually, I want that debt paid. No, see, church, God didn't remit or cancel the debt because of Jesus. No, Jesus paid the debt in full. The debt was satisfied. We sing that in one of our hymn lyrics. The wrath of God was satisfied. Uh, some people in the church today wanted to change that lyric. Um, but we still affirm the wrath of God was not kind of just turned away, like, yeah, we'll just kind of ignore the right. No, it was fully satisfied. The debt was fully paid. Here's what Spurgeon said. He said, Jesus Christ, our Savior, drank the veritable cup of our redemption to its very dregs. He suffered beneath the crushing wheels of divine vengeance the same pains and sufferings that we ought to have endured. He bore our sins that, we might, that he might bear them away by the fact of bearing them himself. And this is the central doctrine of the gospel. Isn't that amazing grace? You and I have been set free. We don't have to wonder, is that debt going to come back and be owed? Like, is it true? Is it real? Yes. Amazing grace. And so the sixth idea that Paul shares with them in verse 14 is this on the screen. He says, in Christ, the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles by faith. And in a way, he quotes, back in verse 6, we'll use it here, he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Note the distinction in verse 14 first between curse and blessing. Did you catch that? In verse 13, he talked about this curse. Jesus received the curse upon himself. And then you see the blessing in verse 14, so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. Not because they're Gentiles, but because God was faithful to keep his promise to Abraham. I think Paul here was referring back to verse 6 where he quotes Genesis 15, six. So let's read verse six again. He says this, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham received the promise. He didn't earn the promise. Abraham believed God and received it. You and I believe God, so we're called sons of Abraham and we receive the promised Holy Spirit who indwells and who seals all believers. We are now, this is my favorite phrase now, for the church. We are Christ's redeemed. Isn't that great? You and I, we're Christ's redeemed. So here's what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, you and I, the redeemed, we are dependent. Uh, Go down to the next one. Uh, Yeah, somewhere. Okay, so I'll start from here. He says, our blessings are what we have by purchase. So we're the redeemed. We'll go back to it. There you go. Our blessings are what we have by purchase, and the purchase is made of God. The blessings are purchased of him, and not only so, but God is the purchaser. Yes, God is both the purchaser and the price. For Christ, who is God, purchased these blessings by offering himself as the price of our salvation. Isn't that awesome? So in Christ, the blessing of Abraham comes to you and I, the Gentiles, by faith. So we're now Christ's redeemed. Six questions and six scriptures to not only shake up the Galatians... But also to point them back to the word of God. So now what I want us to do is apply this passage of scripture. And I think there's three points of application. So here's how we're going to do this. I'll just one at a time list them on the screen. This is for us to apply, take home with us this week in our marriages, in our relationship with our family, at work, etc. Number one, to apply this, I would say, church, fasten your eyes upon the gospel. See, the Galatians took their eyes off of the publicly portrayed crucified Christ. The gospel message, and they allowed other influences to come in, to creep in, to cast doubt, and eventually convince them of heresy. This is always the tactic of Satan. Since the Garden of Eden, Satan has consistently cast doubt on the word of God. From the very beginning, the serpent said to Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? When we allow other influences to cast doubt on God's word, we can become deceived. It's only a matter of time. Before we believe anything and everything. I read this week about a group known as the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments. You ever heard of them? They were really popular in the, in the late 80s, early 90s in Uganda. The Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments. They broke out of the Roman Catholic Church in Uganda in the 80s. And their belief was that they strictly followed the Ten Commandments in order to avoid damnation in the Apocalypse. And they began to do some very odd things. They began to hold weekly fasts where they outlawed soap and they outlawed sex. It was very interesting. And this cult began to unravel when they um, predicted the end of the world at the turn of the millennium. And they were, of course, wrong. And the leaders predicted the end of the world. It didn't happen. And so the leaders wanted to invoke the end of the world. And so there was a mass murder involving poisonings, stabbings, and eventually a massive church fire. 500 people died, or you could say were killed, in the second largest cult mass death behind Jonestown. And that began with a little bit of heretical idea. that that crept in. I mean, they began as Roman Catholics, but still, the concept is there. The Galatians weren't the only group of believers who were easily deceived away from Christ or away from the gospel. You can read this later, but 2 Corinthians 11, Paul told the um, church in Corinth that he was afraid that they would also be led astray. It's very easy for us to become spiritually dull, and so we need to fasten our eyes upon the gospel and that means daily, coming before the Lord in his word, in prayer, remembering, listen, I'm not sufficient in and of myself. Uh, I need to preach the gospel to myself every day. What does that mean? It's a new day. It's a new day. So there's new mercies for today. And, and I'm not going to exhaust God's mercy today. So I need to trust in his finished work in my, in, on my behalf for my righteousness today. I, I need to rest in him, not on my achievements. I, I need to submit all of my frustrations And all of my criticisms of others, I need to submit that to him. I need to see my sin and all the other people's sin around me that I'm so quick to notice in light of the crucified Christ. So when we fasten our eyes upon the gospel, uh, we will not be as easily deceived by some other gospel. Secondly, to apply this, I would say this, since we're talking about experiences in scripture, you need to submit your experience to scripture. We began the sermon that way, but the Galatians were submitting to false teaching, and Paul had to pull out the Old Testament to bring reproof and correction to them. And so though he appealed to their experiences and exposition, it was the timeless word of God which truly brought the impact. So when we come to an experience that causes us to question what we believe about Scripture, we must have the humility and honesty to recognize, maybe I don't fully understand what the Scriptures are teaching on this circumstance. It doesn't mean that the Bible's outdated or the Bible's wrong and the Bible's full of errors, and I like what the culture's doing, so let's just let's make an edited version of the, let's tear out this page, that's bad. Uh, no, what does it mean? It means I'm running on a path and it seems like something's wrong, but then when I realize all of Scripture, I go, oh, okay, now I get it, now I understand it, and I need to study and read it more, not less. You follow me? So a lot of people believe that, hey, the Bible condones slavery, And they would even quote the Bible in their own defense. But that doesn't mean those people were right. That doesn't mean the Bible condones slavery. It means that slave owners were misusing Scripture to propel their sinfulness forward in daily living. I mean, even Satan can and did quote Scripture to his advantage when it meant coming face to face with Christ. So I don't particularly like the fact that the Bible says certain things that maybe I'd be more open to. I don't, I, I don't like that, but I, I that what I like is irrelevant, right? I have to ultimately submit my views to Scripture, and then that's my view now because that's what Scripture teaches. And so when the Bible says something we're uncomfortable with, it's we who must adjust, not what's clearly taught in the book. So listen, beware of the Bible quoted out of context. Beware of those who encourage you to edit the timeless truth and say, well, that was just Paul in the first century. That was just... Cultural ah, that was, that's outdated. We're, we've progressed beyond that now. Uh, don't allow the word of God to bow down and serve your cultural flavor of the month. Submit your experience to scripture. Thirdly, I want to challenge us as a church to give thanks to God. I heard some of you almost cheering when we realize what we have in this passage, what we have in Christ. In light of being redeemed, may we meditate on Colossians 1, 12 through 12-14 where Paul said that he gives thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in the light. Uh, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We should give glory and thanks to God. A Christian life filled without gratitude, just missing gratitude, is a contradiction in terms. You and I, church, we've been released from the greatest debt ever owed on earth. How can you not glorify God and thank him? John Flavel said this, Be convinced that one act of faith in the Lord Jesus pleases God more than all the obedience, all the repentance, all the strivings to obey the law, through thy whole life can do. And thus you have the first special fruits of Christ's priesthood in the full satisfaction of God for all the sins of Believers. We need to give thanks to God who has redeemed us from all of our sin. Amen? As we close this exposition of God's word, I'm going to invite our worship team forward. And we're going to be singing a hymn that we know, How Deep the Fathers Love. It was written by a Brit named Stuart Townend. And he wrote this in 1995. So it's a modern hymn. And he wanted to write a hymn from God's perspective. What it costs the Father to send his son to the cross. And how we are complicit in the death of Christ. And so when asked, why did you write How Deep the Father's Love? Here's what Stuart Townend wrote on the screen. He said, the danger now in our community today, our culture today, is that we're so focused on the experience. That our worship can become self-seeking and self-serving. When all of our songs are about how we feel and what we need, we're missing the point. There's a wonderful, omnipotent God who deserves our highest praise, and how we feel about it is in many ways irrelevant. I want to encourage the expression of joy, passion, and adoration, but I want those things to be the byproduct of focusing on God. I don't want them to become the subject matter. I'm trying to write songs that refer to us as little as possible and to Him as much as possible. See, beloved, in light of being Christ redeemed, may we worship the Father and give him thanks for delivering us from the domain of darkness, for transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. May we give him all the praise, all the glory for qualifying us to share in this inheritance of the saints in light. You and I, who once were called children of wrath, are now called sons of Abraham because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd bow your heads with me, I want to pray. Valley of Vision prayer called God Honored. It's a Puritan prayer that says this. O God, praise waiteth for thee, and to render it as my noblest exercise. This is thy due from all thy creatures, for all thy works display thy attributes and fulfill thy designs. The sea, the dry land, the winter cold, the summer heat, the morning light, the evening shade are full of thee, and thou givest them. Richly to enjoy. Thou art King of kings and Lord of lords. At thy pleasure, empires rise and fall. All thy works praise thee and thy saints bless thee. Let me be numbered with thy holy ones. Let me resemble them in character and condition. And let me sit with them at Jesus' feet. May my faith be always firmly rooted in thy word. My understanding divinely informed. My affections holy and heavenly, my motives simple and pure, and my heart never wrong with thee. Deliver me from the natural darkness of my own mind, deliver me from the corruptions of my heart, deliver me from the temptations to which I am exposed, and deliver me from the daily snares that attend me. Let thy watchful eye ever be upon me for my defense, and save me from the power of my worldly and spiritual enemies, and from all Painful evils to which I have exposed myself. Until the day of life dawns above, let there be unrestrained fellowship with Jesus. And until fruition comes, may I enjoy the earnest of my inheritance and the first fruits of the spirit until I finish my course with joy. May I pursue it with diligence. Father, that's our prayer today. That we, Lord, would be settled in our faith, that we would trust in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And that this morning as we worship you, as we um, distribute these elements, Lord, and as we hold on to the bread and the cup, and in just a few moments, Lord, partake of the communion table, we ask, Lord, that you would remind us of what you've done, how deep your Father's love for us, and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you, we worship you. It's in Christ's name we pray, Amen. amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.